come on a journey with a cinephile. Episode number 22 of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast. As always, your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. here. And on episode number 22, this is Centennial Club episode number 5, where I have featured reviews of the platform that is on Netflix, as well as from 1920, The Penalty, which is starring Lon Chaney. Now, for many reviews this week, I only have two, as I've been watching some non-genre stuff this week as well as some tv shows so what i have many reviews of though are going to be damien omen 2 as well as sleepaway camp 2 unhappy campers but before i get you over to those mini reviews i wanted to do monthly review for the month of march i did watch a total of 33 films, 27 of which were horror films, as well as six of those being 2020 releases for horror. Now, the ones that I did watch for the month would be starting with Jackals, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1920, To the Devil, A Daughter, The Agfa Horror Trailer Show, The Void, Zombie Child, The Golem from also from 1920, The Dark Red, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 2000, Eyes Without a Face from 1960, Cloverfield, Hold That Ghost, which was a Abbott and Costello film, Murder, Death, Koreatown, Zombie with a Shotgun, Into the Dark Crawlers, Leprechaun 2, The Blair Witch Project. I did watch Genuine, The Tragedy of a Vampire from 1920 twice, as I found originally just the 45-minute cut, and then I found a full-length version on YouTube. The Room, Bird with the Crystal Plumage, Open Grave, The Crow, City of Angels, the TV show The Outsider, The Bay, The Platform, and The Penalty. Now, all of these can be heard on this show either earlier on episodes or the last two of the month are actually the two featured reviews on this episode here. But just kind of going through some things, the highest rated horror film that I watched for this month would end up having to be a tie between or no it would actually be the Blair Witch Project at a nine was the best horror film that I've watched for this month and then the lowest rated one that I watched would be would probably end up being Dr. Jekyll from 2000 that I gave it a four and I've watched the new horror movies that I watched for this month would be Zombie Child, The Dark Red, Murder Death Koreatown, which I would highly recommend if you are a fan of found footage. I do know that's on, I believe, Amazon Prime now. Crawlers, that Into the Dark episode, The Room, and The Platform. And the highest rated for the 2020 watches for these movies that I've seen would have to be a tie between Murder, Death, Koreatown, The Room, and another one of them that I watched that I don't really want to spoil just yet, but I gave all of those an 8, where the lowest rated one that I've watched would be The Dark Red with a 6. And then I've also watched quite a bit of the 1920s movies as I'm getting very close to completing that, and I will, an upcoming episode, have a top for however many i can actually find to watch i do know some of these are lost so i'm do am struggling to you know find a way to check them out but that is all i really wanted to go over with the monthly review there something i will kind of keep critiquing and kind of working on as i'm going if you have any feedback of how i can make this little section better please reach out to me um, in any of the ways that'll be at the end of this show whether it's via email or through social media I do want to make this, you know, the best show possible. So if you can help me do that, I would greatly appreciate it. 
But what I'm going to go ahead and do is send you over to a first musical break before getting you over to those mini reviews. For the first mini review of the week, I have Damien the Omen 2. This is directed by Don Taylor and it's uncredited as well by Mike Hodges. Now, the story is from Harvey Bernhard. This is based on characters by David Seltzer. And then the screenplay is co written by Stanley Mann and Mike Hodges. This stars William Holden, Lee Grant, and Jonathan Scott Taylor. This is a horror film from the United Kingdom and the United States. This is currently sitting on a 6.3 on IMDb and a 2.9 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being Damien the Antichrist, now about to turn 13 years old, finally learns of his destiny under the guidance of an unholy 
disciple of Satan. Meanwhile, dark forces begin to eliminate those who suspect the child's true identity. Now, the first time that I saw this movie was probably in college. I know that I saw this probably soon after seeing the original. To be honest though, I didn't really remember a whole lot about it except that Damien was now a teen. And I was intrigued to give this one a rewatch for sure, as I just gave The Omen a rewatch and I really enjoyed that one. Now, this one picks up right where the first one left off, where the news has gotten to Carl Bugenhagen, who is Leo McKern again in this one. The news that Damien has survived the attempt from his father. Now, the he reaches out to an archaeologist, Michael, who is Ian Hendry. He's trying to convince him to tell Richard Thorne, who is William Holden, about what his brother Robert was trying to do. Now, in order to convince Michael, Bugenhagen takes him down into this tunnel underneath a temple where he shows him this wall where there is a painting of Damien as a child and it is the same exact look of Damien from the first film. Now something happens though and we see a either a crow or a raven outside and then the temple starts to collapse on himself. Now the movie then shifts seven years into the future where Damien is Scott Taylor here and he lives with his cousin Mark who is Lucas Donat and they go to a military academy together. They're preparing to head back to school, and we get to see an interaction with both boys with their Aunt Marion, who is Sylvia Sidney, as she expresses her displeasure directly to Damien. She likes Mark, but doesn't trust the other boy and doesn't want the two of them to spend time together as she's afraid Damien will poison him. His adopted parents of Richard and Anne, who Anne is portrayed by Lee Grant, don't want to hear anything of this as they consider Damien to be one of their children. And then away at school, they have a new commanding officer, a Sergeant Neff, who is played by a young Lance Hendrickson. As he tells both of these Thorn boys that despite their heritage at the school, they won't be given special treatment. But Sergeant Neff seems to take special interest in Damien. And then this is coupled with Richard has a co-worker of Bill Arterton, who is Lou Ayers. They're trying to figure out their next plan, but Arterton is not too fond of Paul Boer, who is Robert Foxworth, and what he wants to do. It involves controlling the growth of food for profit, and he's told to shelve the idea for now. But much like with some other people, accidents are happening around everybody. And there are a bunch of people that are trying to tell Richard that Damien is the Antichrist, but he won't hear any of it and thinks that his brother had some mental illness when he tried to kill his son. But the more and more evidence that he's given, the more and more that it seems like that might be the actual case. Now I wanted to start off here stating my biggest worry with sequels is to not violate continuity and I think this one does a really good job of not doing that if I'm honest. It starts pretty close after the original one ended before jumping us into the future with this new story and I thought that all worked for me. To get into the meat of this movie though, I really like this is exploring Christianity and more in depth of the book of revelations in the New Testament. Now. As you know, if you've listened to other things, that I'm an atheist, so I like to look at this almost like other types of mythology, so it does still interest me. Damien, though, still has no idea, and I like that. He's just a normal kid that gives some people creepy vibes, which feels natural for children in general, especially one who has gone through the things that he has. What is scary here, though, is that there are people that know who he is on both sides, and some of the people that know that he's the son of Satan and wants to help him are actually holding some pretty important positions around him. Now, I don't want to reveal who those people are, as I don't want to spoil this movie, even though it is, you know, coming up on 40 years old. Actually, it's over 40 years old already. But I think it's interesting how they fit into the book of Revelations, where one of them uses the word famine a lot, as that is one of the four horsemen of Apocalypse. And another one is in the military, so you could consider that war, or I guess possibly conquest, as one of the other, you know, four horsemen. These are just cool aspects that are worked into the story with how I saw them as they're revealed. This film does seem to mirror the original as well. Richard and Robert do not believe what the people are telling them. I think part of that is their standing in society, but it also is ludicrous if you think about it logically. We as viewers see things that the characters themselves don't, so we know, but I like that they're grounded in reality. I do like that this one is different in that Anne doesn't suspect him where in the original the mother did. Also giving Damien a bigger part and discovering a bit of himself as he's coming into puberty I think adds a level here to set it apart. It is really setting the stage for how the prophecy plays out just as we learned just how powerful the Thorn family is that even though his father passed away that his uncle 
has an interesting standing that's not necessarily in politics, but in the world of business. If I did have any issues, it would come with how the story plays out though. I've already said that there's a lot of it that just works for me, but when I got about an hour or so into it, I thought the movie was lacking a bit in direction. Not enough to ruin it, but I just couldn't figure out or get a feel of where it was gonna take us. I think part of that is just how, of what happens to Joan and just how far it felt from having one of his parents change his mind on the boy. I will say that I never got bored and I like how it ends. That's just how it felt as it was playing out for me. Moving this to the acting, I thought that Holden was really good. He plays a similar role to that of Gregory Peck. And I think that both help to ground their respective characters. It feels natural, their change in what they believe, and I like that. Grant is a good counterpoint to him. She firmly believes that Damien is good and she loves Mark as well. I like that plus how her character stays the same when her husband, you know, starts to see that maybe these things that people are telling him are true. Scott Taylor at first annoyed me, but his performance grew on me. It actually feels like he gets more confident as he goes on. And I think part of that is the more that he learns about himself, the more that probably is the reason. I thought it was fun to see a young Henriksen here as Neff, as I thought he did good. I also thought that Foxworth, Pryor, Ayers, Sidney, Shepard, and Alan Arbus all helped to round this out for what was needed. I also didn't mind Donat, but as a teen actor, he wasn't great. Definitely not bad, though, by any stretch, either. Something I did have some slight issues with would be the effects. There was a dummy death that just wasn't great, and it actually made me laugh. I did like everything else in the sequence leading up to it, though. The effects were done practical, which I prefer, and a lot of that is the era that this came out in. But this one I thought took a step back as it tried to ramp that up a bit more. They just didn't necessarily work for me, and the cinematography, though, I thought was really good, so I will give it that. The last thing would be the soundtrack, which I'm glad they followed suit with their predecessor in sticking with the course roll music that is singing in Latin. It makes me feel religious and quite eerie. And I would listen to the soundtrack while I'm writing, if I'm going to be honest, as it does bring uneasy feeling for sure. It, fe it helps to drive the tension in my eyes. Now, with that said, I was a bit nervous about seeing this movie, wondering how this would follow up a classic. I think this does a really good job in continuing the co to build the story, the mythology, as well as the continuity. I like pushing it into the future so we could do more with Damien and bringing him closer to puberty, where he was, you know, just a child in the original. I thought his acting from scott taylor and the rest of the cast was good the story doesn't seem as focused but not enough to ruin the movie overall the soundtrack fit and helps to build the tension the effects were hit or miss if i'm gonna be honest but i think that it was shot very well overall aside from that especially when we're seeing things happen that are supernatural but in the scheme of the movie the characters do not i think that just helps to ground the movie in reality i would rate this as a good movie and a solid follow-up to the original for sure. I think this could be watched by itself, but I would recommend, you know, seeing the first one before seeing this one, just so you can kind of get the full story and the full grasp of everything that is going on. So I came in here with an 8 out of 10. Okay, and for my second mini-review of this week is going to be Sleepaway Camp 2, Unhappy Campers. This comes from 1988. This is directed by Michael A. Simpson. It was written by Fritz Gordon and is based on the original idea from Robert Hiltzik. This stars Pamela Springsteen, Renee Estevez, and Tony Higgins. This is a horror comedy from the United States. This is currently sitting on a 5.7 on IMDb and a 2.8 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being Angela, supposedly reformed and living under an assumed surname, is working at a summer camp. However, when the campers start misbehaving, she soon reverts to her old ways. Now, this is a movie that I actually remember seeing the VHS cover quite a bit growing up, but for whatever reason, I never actually checked it out. And what really stood out to me was the fact that there was the hockey mask as well as a take on Freddy's glove. So that's something that stuck with me all these years. The same thing would go for the original one though as well. But as I got into podcasts, I started to hear more about that film. And I've heard a little bit about this one. And I know this has been covered under some franchise shows on some of the ones that I like to listen to regularly. So it has been on my list for some time. And we start with a group of campers that are a bit older telling ghost stories over a campfire. There's a young woman there that tells the story of the events of the first movie. But it now has become sort of like a local legend. Now around the campfire are Sean, who is Higgins. There's TC, who is played by Brian Patrick Clark, as well as Rob, who is Terry Hobbs. Now, Angela, who in this is Springsteen, shows up and scolds her, telling her that she's going to send her home. But the synopsis is a bit misleading as this camper is murdered for hanging out with those boys like she is. And then from there, we get to see this camp as things are going on where 
every time somebody misbehaves, Angela takes care of them. But then the question really becomes, how long can Angela be getting away with this before somebody is going to catch on? And the man who runs the camp is his Uncle John, who was portrayed by Walter Gotel, who tells her that she is going to be fired because of what she's doing. So that's when Angela fully snaps. Now, if you know me, I'm a story guy. Seeing that this came out five years after the original and near the end of the slasher golden age, I was intrigued to see how this movie would play out and what it would be about. To look at the continuity first, I like the idea that Angela went away to a mental hospital and had an official sex change. So that avoids any issues there. I do wonder though if they would really let her be a counselor after everything that she did, even if she was rehabilitated. Now my thing there would be, this would be something that they could possibly consider would make her revert back to her old ways as it'd bring up, bring up past trauma. But this is a part comedy, so I'm gonna give a little bit of leeway there. Now that's what I wanna look at next. This is what Freddy and characters like this that have personality, so they wanted to incorporate that more. Angela had some one-liners that made me cringe, but I'm not gonna lie, I didn't actually hate it completely. It really does make it cheesy though, if I'm gonna be honest. Speaking of Freddy, there's also an interesting meta aspect here as well. In order to scare Angela, some of the male campers make a glove like you'd see in A Nightmare on Elm Street, as well as one of them has a hockey mask like Jason would wear. And I even got a bit of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, with how things end up going down as there is a chainsaw involved as well. I didn't mind this, especially since it helped give Angela some more interesting weapons to kill with. Now, something that I am confused by is how old these campers were. I guess because I never went to Cap, I'm shocked to see 16 and 17 year olds that are there. They might actually not be that old, but just having older actors play younger characters. This isn't something that was super uncommon when it came to slasher films, especially. That is something that just struck me and I wanted to point it out. As for the pacing, this movie, knows exactly what it's going for. It is leaning into being a slasher with comedy elements, so a runtime of 80 minutes is perfect. I did wonder where this was gonna go with about 20 minutes left, but it did make sense in the end. I never got bored with the movie. It also wasn't the greatest either, and I'll admit that I did have some fun with it, and where things end up, I was fine as well. My real issues here came from something that I'll dive into here shortly. Before that though, I wanna talk about the acting. I thought that Springsteen was fine in her performance, as a more confident Angela. I don't really know if I like that she's been, you know, the whole cured angle, as we never see her being normal, so we don't get that baseline there. It is a different take from Felissa Rose, and it worked for me. I'm glad this movie had an Angela-like character in the form of Molly, and I thought Estevez did a really good job in that portrayal. It almost feels like Angela wants to be like her, and it is interesting. Now, Higgins, as the male who is taking interest in Molly, I thought he was good as a jock who might actually be more of a good guy than what we're letting on. Now there's an Allie character here who is portrayed by Valerie Hartman. She's kind of the slut that we get in this movie. She shows off her assets quite a bit, which I thought was good and I did enjoy seeing that quite a bit. Thought the rest of the cast was solid and round this out. They're not great, but it's a slasher so they fit. Plus, as I was saying, we get quite a bit of nudity so that is, if there's something you're looking for, I'm definitely give this a viewing. What I was referring to though a little bit earlier were the effects. I did have some slight issues there. The effects that we got were practical, and I thought they looked good. The problem is that there aren't too many deaths on screen, even though there are quite a bit of deaths in the movie. For a slasher, that is what I wanted to see. I don't know if it was edited out due to, you know, there was quite a bit of these type of films that were heavily edited by the MPAA. I don't know if it was that or they didn't have the budget to make it look good or they just decided against it. But regardless, that did hurt my viewing. The cinematography though was fine outside of that. Now with that said, this isn't great by any stretch. Taking the original, which is pretty serious and make it into a comedy does take a step down for me, but I'll admit, I had fun here. The acting with the stars I thought was solid and the movie never got boring. There's a slight meta feel to it that I did enjoy. The soundtrack wasn't great, but it was fine for what they needed. The biggest issue is that the effects that we got were good, but they were just, they don't show enough of them and the story isn't good enough without that. So I would have to say this is an average slasher movie to me, but I've seen much worse if I'm gonna be honest. My rating here would be a five out of 10. Now I do wanna apologize. This is another week where it's been a little bit lighter with the mini reviews. Now I did watch Blood and Black Lace and recorded a little bit for that. Cause I know Duncan over on the podcast under the stairs is doing another where to start episode. So that is, I was doing for prep for that. So I just figured I would knock it out this week. So. 
that is one film that I watched that I'm not reviewing here because you'll be able to hear that when that episode comes out for that. Now, I did end up finishing as well the Tiger King documentary, you know, the murder, mayhem, and madness with, you know, Joe Exotica and Carol Baskin and all those people. I thought that was a good thing. Not really a horror like that, but I did give that show an 8. And then I have watched some non-genre stuff as well with the old lady. So that has been taking up a little bit of my time. I'm hoping to get back, you know, on the horror watching where I'm able to, you know, do mini reviews and stuff like that. But I just wanted to kind of fill you in with what's going on there. But what I'm going to go ahead and do is kick you over to the trailer for my first featured review. There are three kinds of people. The ones above, the ones below, and the ones who fall. So this is, uh... The pit. Bingo. Mr. Termagasi, do you know how this all works? It's obvious. We must eat. What will it be? Whatever the ones above don't want. It's disgusting. How many are below us? Soon there will be less. Was that a person? Obviously it was a person. Nobody's gonna do anything! If everybody ate only what they needed, the food would get to the lowest level. Help me go down. Down the suicide. Hunger will drive you mad. You have a big heart, but honestly, I don't think you'll survive for long. And for my first featured review of this episode is going to be The Platform. This was made in 2019. This is directed by Galder Gatstello Urutia. This comes from a story from David D. Sola, as well as he co-wrote the screenplay with Pedro Rivero. This is a horror sci-fi thriller from Spain. It is currently sitting on a 7.0 on IMDb and a 3.4 on Letterboxd. With the synopsis being a vertical prison with one cell per level, two people per cell, only one food platform, and two minutes per day to feed them from up to down, an endless nightmare trapped in the pit. Now this movie I heard about when a podcast I listened to caught this at a film festival and said it was one that they thought was odd, but they enjoyed and to keep an eye out for it this year. I then heard people in the social media communities I'm a part of talking about it as well, so I figured I would give this a viewing for a featured review on here especially since it seemed to have a lot to delve into. And I should also point out, this is another Centennial Club episode, which you heard in the beginning of this episode, but with this being made in 2019, but getting its release in 2020, it does qualify, which this isn't the first time I've done this, so you guys probably all know that. If you've been listening, I just thought I should point that out before I delved into this any further. Now, much like the premise of the movie states, we're following Goreng, who is Ivan Masagu. And I actually realized I didn't say who stars in this movie, which is Masagu, Zorian Igolar, and Antonia San Juan. Now, Goreg volunteers to come into this prison. He's given the opportunity to get an accredited diploma if he can serve six months here. His first roommate is Trimasagi, who is Elagor. He's an older man who gives him a bit of the rules. Once a day, a platform of food will lower from above. You get two minutes to eat whatever you want from it. It then goes down to the next floor until it completes its journey and going back up. Problem is that those at the top are gorging themselves and those at the bottom are eventually getting nothing where it's pretty much just empty plates and bowls and cups and everything like that. Now, Gorig points out this information to try Masagi and, acu- and then the older man accuses him of being a communist. And I also should point out here that each cell also has a sink where you can get water from it. And then it also has a toilet and everything like that. So in this first room that these guys are in, they create sort of a feel of normalcy. Now, at first, 
Goreg doesn't eat, though. But he eventually has to give in to hunger. He was trying to take this opportunity to quit smoking and to... You also get to bring one item into the prison with you. Which for him is that he's always wanted to read the book Don Quixote. So that's what he brings. Now this experience really changes a person and it pushes them to do things they normally wouldn't. And on top of that, you cannot keep any food from the platform as it leaves your floor. Which Goreng learns firsthand. You stay in your cell for one month and if your cellmate dies during then, the next month you're given someone new. You are taken to a new floor each month. And there's also a woman that is looking for her child, Miharu, who is Alexandria Masenke, as she will ride the platform down from her floor all the way to the bottom and kills anyone that tries to mess with her on her journey. Now, that's all I really wanted to delve into for the plot of this movie, as it's not the... as I don't really want to spoil anything, and it's, I was going to say, is it's not the most complex story that we get, but it's more about seeing what Goreng endures during his time here. This is also a fitting time for this movie to get its wide release, which I like as well. This has an interesting concept overall, and I'm going to try to hit all the points that I felt were pertinent that I took from it. Now, the first thing that really struck me while watching this is Goreng is here voluntarily. I've seen Facebook posts or on Instagram as well where like, would you spend X amount of time in a prison to have your student loan debt wiped out? Or something like, would you live in this cabin with no internet or television for X amount of time for X amount of this movie is exploring that idea. Instead of going through school, Goreng decides to come here to try to get a diploma to better his life. Trimasagi is there for a different reason, and it is only by choice as the other was a mental hospital. There's another character of Moguri, who is San Juan, who is interestingly here for a bit more knowledge on the place, and for a sad reason as well. As we end up learning in her backstory that she has worked for the people that are behind this prison and is trying to help it reach what she believes is its actual mission for being created. And then the same could be said for Mahuru, which I don't know if we can fully believe what the story is there. Is One of them is that she has a child and she's riding this down to find that child and, like I said, kills anybody that tries to stop her. But on the flip side of that, there's also another reason that it's claimed that that's not the true reason, that the first one's not true, and that she actually just has mental issues and is pretty much just a murderer who gets enjoyment for what she does. Now, what I was saying a little bit earlier is that this is also a fitting time where there's people my age that are speaking out about capitalism and how it's problematic. Before anyone gets upset, and if you want to stop listening to this review here, that's fine. But I have a job that is pretty well paying. I'll probably never be rich, but I can pay my bills, support my hobbies, and do things for fun that I want to. I want to have more for the people in this country of the United States so they can experience the same thing. Gorig presents this idea, and it's ironic that his older cellmate calls him a communist. This almost feels like a play on the OK Boomer type thing that we have going on right now. Goring is making an amazing point that if everyone could just take what they need instead of eating their fill and leaving some for the rest instead of gorging, then everyone could eat. This is much like those at the top of capitalism taking all the money and the masses are being told that it will trickle down. This is a great allegory of that it doesn't work by taking it from, you know, money and exchanging that for food. And I like that we get to see Goreg as he gets jaded but he never fully loses his faith in this idea and wanting people to be better. There's an interesting look at the descending into madness here as well. Goring is haunted by those that he comes in contact with during his time here, and I think it's interesting how this plays out. He loses his mind, sometimes due to hunger and other times due to flat-out despair as well as isolation, especially with what he's dealing with. Regardless, they become the voices in his head trying to direct him what to do. They take on the good and evil voices that is kind of believed that everybody has inside them, which, I mean, we've all seen back, if you watched the Merry Melodies or Looney Tunes cartoons where, you know, you'd have somebody in the devil costume who looks just like you, especially with Bugs Bunny or, like, the angel on the other shoulder, to kind of tell you what you should and shouldn't do. Now, the character of Miharu also descends into madness, if you kind of look at that, but it looks like she's gone to the point of no return and there's not a chance that she can bounce back. Trimagasi tells him that there's that she's there to find her child as i was saying earlier Imojugari provides a different take on her stating that the child couldn't be here because they're not allowed to have anybody 
volunteer themselves or be subjected to this that are under the age of 16. Regardless, this character once a month continues to search and is a wild person in general. She does create a bond with Gorang, but I think it's more that he treats her like a human, where the people in here don't really do that. And then you also have this classism system that if you're for that month on the top, you treat those below you horribly. And then their justification is that they've been at the bottom, so they felt how others did it. So now they get the chance, they will do it. Instead of breaking the cycle, everybody just keeps perpetuating it. Now, there's also probably another allegory here, as I was saying, for how we treat people around us that are below our circumstances, which I kind of just went a little bit more in depth into. But that is what I wrote down as well. I think that is all I can say for the story as of now. So moving to the pacing, this just has a normal runtime of 94 minutes. After we get that, I'd consider the first part of Gorig's time in this place. And I was wondering where it would go from there. Now, that first part I'm talking about is that it's his first cell. And then it starts almost like a second chapter when he moves down with his roommate. I do think that this might run just a bit long, which is crazy because of the normal runtime. But I like the story of what they're trying to convey. So I wasn't necessarily bored, but it does slow down. They don't give us a lot of backstory, which I normally like. But I think that there's a mystery here that works for that underlying issue. And the ending works for me. But I could see some people not liking it, if I'm going to be honest. And I just should point out, the second room they go to is not boring by any stretch. It's more of after we get from that to the third chapter, where he does get to move back up in this prison. Just to clarify, so if anybody hears that and is questioning what I meant, I wanted just to make sure that I had pointed that out. Now, the acting here I thought was solid across the board, though. I thought that Mesagu did a really good job as the lead for this movie. He's the first person to bring a book into this place, and it almost seemed like he thought he'd be spending his time in a cell with a mate and just passing the time, which is what I think some people think prison is, where they just kind of want to keep to themselves, do their own thing. But he gets a rude awakening to see how different this place is. And I like that he sees an opportunity to, to do better, even though he meets resistance, he continues to try, which I kind of feel like when I'm trying to help make this place a better, like this world a better place, and I see my other friends trying to do similar things on social media, I almost get that same feel that that's an allegory to the plight of those who want to better the world instead of those who like how it is currently and look at other people who are lesser than them as not my problem and they've made poor decisions so they should, you know, they've made their bed and they should lie in it type thing. Eagle R really did a solid job as someone that you see how good it can be at the top and has had the difficult decision of being low in it. He's also what is bad about capitalism and it's hard for me to blame him with his older and he's not all there mentally but regardless it is everything that I see that's wrong with capitalism. San Juan is a tragic character, as is Masenke, depending on the backstory you find to be true with her. Now, the rest of the cast rounded this out for what was needed. And if you couldn't tell, this movie has quite a bit of sci-fi vibe to it as well. The platform doesn't seem to have any strings or chains to move it up and down. It just floats, and I thought that effect looked good. It is also interesting to know how the people are keeping food on their floor or not, which causes bad things to happen which if you do keep it it gets really hot where you'll pretty much burn up if you don't return it or it can get severely cold where you would just die of hypothermia very quickly so that's kind of what will happen if you try to violate that rule we also get interesting shots where gorig loses his mind so props to the cinematography there there's some more effects with like blood and wounds and everything that i thought were done practically and looked really great and there's something else i didn't point out earlier is that one of the first opening sequences we get is seeing the, what I'm assuming is like a head chef, where this food that they're actually preparing is like five-star quality rated food, and everybody that comes in gets to pick out their favorite food, because at one point it'll be on the menu. I just think this is interesting that how these people are treating the food is not like the thought process of how it is made. So there's just interesting duality there, how we treat kind of like our wait staff is what I kind of took that as, where these people are putting their time and effort, and the head chef is very strict about how it's performed. And then you get to see people as they're running all over the plates, you know, just sticking their hands in it, grabbing it, because you only have two minutes, so you can't eat like a civilized human being. And it's an interesting look at how quickly we can delve into animals when we are faced with 
circumstances that are not normal like we currently live in. So with that said, I think I've conveyed everything that I wanted to. So I really enjoyed this movie, despite its bleak outlook on the state of affairs in some places. I mean, I personally love bleak films, so that is kind of me being a little bit biased. This is interesting to come out of Spain, but it hits so close to home for me as a resident of the United States. I think that the acting is really good, and the allegories it's exploring are well done. There are some really good effects in this movie, and the soundtrack fit for what was needed. If I had any problems, I do feel like it gets bit boring for a little stretches here and there, but I never lost my interest. I would say that my rating here would be a good movie. I might have to revisit this again before the end of the year, as this could be a contender for my top 10. So my rating here is going to be an 8 out of 10. And I don't really have anything that I wanted to delve into with spoilers for the movie here. I don't want to just blatantly come out and tell you the ending, because I don't feel like there's anything to kind of gain from that. I mean, the big thing with this movie is they're trying to find a way to bring this system down. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is, hence, I could explore my allegories without necessarily spoiling the film. I'm going to just go ahead and get you over to the trailer for my second featured review. And for my second featured review of this episode, it's going to be The Penalty from 1920. This is, of course, the second half of the Centennial Club pairing up here. This is directed by Wallace Worsley. This is adapted from a famous novel from Governor Morris. And then the scenario was written by Charles Kenyon, as well as uncredited to Philip Lonergan. This is starring Charles Cleary. Doris Pawn and Jim Mason. This is a crime drama horror thriller from the United States. It is currently sitting on a 7.4 on IMDb and a 3.6 on Letterboxd, with the synopsis being a deformed criminal mastermind plans to loot the city of San Francisco as well as revenge himself on the doctor who mistakenly amputated his legs. 
Now this was another film that I'd never really heard of until I decided to do this Centennial Club episode. So it really only popped up during my research. As one of the few, you know, horror films from 1920, I was excited to see that Lon Chaney starred in this, as I'm a fan of him, and that's about the extent of what I knew. I will admit, I did read the synopsis right before I put this on finally, but before that, I didn't really know anything, just wrote down the title. Now we start this off where Dr. Ferris, who is Clay, elected to amputate the legs off of a boy after an accident. We don't ever really get to learn what that accident is, but that was the route he took. His mentor comes in and tells him that he's made a blunder, but then the mentor decides that he's going to lie for this young doctor, so when the boy's parents arrive, they state the amputation was needed to save his life. The boy points out that the doctors are lying, and it is ignored, with the reasoning being is that he's having the effects of ether from the surgery. This boy grows up to be known as Blizzard, who is Chaney. He's the head of a criminal underworld of the Barbary Coast. It is interesting, though, as he walks with crutches and has what I'm assuming is a leather harness over the stubs where his legs actually are. Blizzard is also ruthless, where we see when a woman isn't working up to his standards and he physically assaults her, which is pretty shocking to see on film. Now there's the detective Lichtenstein, who is Milton Ross, wants to get to the bottom of what Blizzard is planning, as they all know that he's a criminal where he has committed arson, kidnapping, murder, all of these things, and they can actually pin it on him, which is surprising that they don't bring him in, but the reason behind it is that even if Blizzard is out of the picture, his criminal organization will still function without him, so they want to be able to bring it down from the inside to prevent whatever they're trying to do. And I'm assuming this might be before they do like the Rico type cases, where if he can pin it on the head person, he can trickle it down to everybody else. But with this coming out in 1920, that's probably not a thing as of yet. I do apologize for not looking up what that year is, but I digress. All they know at the moment is that his organization is making a bunch of hats and he's pulled all of his dancing girls from clubs to do this, but he can't put together what the reasoning is. So he takes Rose, who is a detective and portrayed by Ethel Gray Terry, and assigns her to work for him and try to get as close as she can. Blizzard is also trying to keep an eye on the career of a doctor that disfigured him. He is now mentoring another doctor, Wilmot Allen, who is Kenneth Harlan, and Dr. Ferris also has a daughter by the name of Barbara, who is Claire Adams. The two are set to be married, but she is resisting, as she wants to be an artist and somewhat more independent, and this bothers both her father and her fiancé, who want her to kind of conform to what society thinks. Now, our villain has come up with a plan to pull off the biggest heist San Francisco has ever seen, and he even says it's going to go on to make him a de facto king, as well as revenge for what happened to him as a boy. What puts us into motion is when Barbara wants to do a sculpture of Satan after his fall, Blizzard makes it where he's the only model for it, but with the rage that he harbors, this could be the masterpiece that she needs to actually have an art career. Now, that's where I'm going to end my recap of this movie, as I don't really want to go into spoilers as to what the reveals are, but I do have to say this film, like a lot of ones from the era, I've come to notice that aren't really based off original ideas, which I can't blame them for. Not to say that we don't get their own takes on it, but it's either based in mythology, plays, or from books are the basis, and this one is no different. This is from a pulp novel by Morris. I'm sure it would be pretty difficult to find since it is a pulp, but now that I've seen this movie, I'm curious as to how much of this is taken from that book and how much of it is the movie doing its own thing from it. Regardless, we do explore some interesting ideas in this movie. The first aspect I want to look into is the character of Blizzard. I don't recall if it really says what the accident that happened to him as a child, but he was disfigured when the doctor takes his legs. This is medical malpractice, which we still see today, but what really bothers me is the doctors collude to lie and cover for each other. Not only that, this boy is told that he's lying, so it's hard for me to fault him for being as resentful as he is and blaming them like he does. He has a legit point. Now, I don't necessarily think that just because you were wronged as a child that you can't let it go and become you know an adult where you can do something you know normal and be a good person where that is definitely not the case when it comes to blizzard here it is intriguing that this is the first movie i can remember actually seeing what lon cheney looks like without some sort of makeup or a mask on and he wasn't a bad looking guy he could do a lot with his facial expressions which is something that i can do myself so i think it's great that he can make himself look as hideous because i really needed that for this role especially with the how he's going to be the basis for a sculpture of Satan. 
This movie also has an interesting look at misogyny with an interesting light for the era. I like that Rose is the detective here, which shocked me to see for something like that in 1920. She infiltrates Blizzard's gang. Lichtenstein doesn't even want to ask her, knowing how dangerous that it is. What I don't like, though, is that she immediately seems to fall in love with him. I will give some leeway, as she has seen the man that is actually underneath this criminal, and the way he plays the piano is so beautiful that it softens her up. And I also didn't really care for the fact that Dr. Allen telling Barbara that she needs to give up her dream of being an artist to be a housewife. I get it's the times, but it's still problematic for me as I have to look at this from my point of view in modern times. So I am a little bit more forgiving though knowing that this did come out in 1920. There's an intriguing look at malpractice and the what I consider like the old boys club. Dr. Ferris is scolded by his mentor, but instead of ruining his life as a promising new doctor, he covers for him. This ruins the life and makes Blizzard and the man that he becomes. Losing his legs shouldn't ruin his life, but I mean, they didn't have a lot of the amenities that we do now. So it, again, it's hard to blame him for being as angry as he is. I just don't like that Dr. Ferris seems to be getting away with what he does and covering it up bothered me. And this film almost has an interesting little sci-fi take on it with some of the plan that blizzard comes up with which really shocked me for the era now moving to this to the pacing i really didn't have any issues i never really found this boring which is surprising sometimes for these more silent films there are a few times that it hooked me into trying to figure out what is going on and once they explain one thing they give me a new mystery after that which i really dug the first bit is what blizzard is planning with all of these hats then why does he have a secret room in his basement that is, looks like a full operating room. And what is this all for? There's an interesting duality with the religion in that amputating of his legs has made him so bitter and angry that he's very similar to Satan. Now I've laid out my issues, but the ending I didn't necessarily expect. And since it caught me off guard, I did enjoy it. The act in this movie is over the top, but you need to come to expect that. These are probably all stage actors, and without sound, it is hard to convey your feelings. Clary was fine as a doctor who really does get away with something really horrible and ruining this kid's life. And I do have a little bit of the problem that this movie doesn't explore him being punished. Now, I know what they're trying to do here at the end to try to make him have his own re like redemption story, but it doesn't do enough for me. He still should have some repercussions. Now, I will say, Chaney is amazing as the villain. I love that he plays it so tragic and can do so much with his facial expressions. Ross was fine as well as Terry. I just didn't like how the latter was written to fall in love as quickly as she does, but it is a movie, so I have to overlook that a little bit. Harlan and Adams were also fine, but there's again a bit of misogyny with him. And I'd say that the cast rounded this out for what was needed. Taking this next to the effects, the cut of the film that I watched was on YouTube. I would like to see if there's a much better restoration than the one that I saw as it was pretty rough. This movie doesn't do a lot in the way of effects aside from making Blizzard look like a W amputee. I end up looking up some trivia and I love how they did this and how dedicated Chaney was, but he would tie his legs and put this harness to make it look like he didn't have them and what i read is it was extremely painful and caused some pretty horrible damage that really was unable to be kind of fixed it just makes me i mean it makes sense how how angry he looks at times so i mean i can't really blame him and the cinematography was pretty basic but i come to expect that with early cinema so i'm not going to hold that against it the last thing to cover was i didn't really care for the version i saw soundtrack it was one song played on loop it did fit at times, but others it just really didn't, where I wanted something that was a little bit more suspenseful to help get my anxiety going a little bit. It is hard to fault this movie, though, as you don't necessarily know what was synced up with this when this first was, you know, released. But I would like to revisit this movie another time with a different soundtrack to see how it affects how I feel. I did think the one that I saw worked, just not everywhere that it was used, and just how they worked with it. So now with that said, this movie does do some really interesting things with the story and the concept. I really like the character of Blizzard and what and what develops him to be the man that he is. I think it really does explore some interesting ideas that are still relevant today like malpractice, nurture to the develop of a criminal, as well as misogyny. I do think there's a little bit of a cop-out though to explain and how this movie tries to end with the redemption story, but 
you'll have that, I guess. I think the acting, especially from Chaney, was good. I never found myself bored. We don't really get a lot in the way of effects, but we also don't really need them as it's not necessarily that type of movie. The soundtrack was too repetitive, so I'd like to seek a different one out. But overall, I would rate this as above average, and this could actually go up to being a good movie. Just at this moment, I have to sit with a 7.5 out of 10. And... Since I was able to kind of go over the issues I wanted to this movie, I'm not going to spoil it. Much like the previous movie on this episode, I don't think I need a spoiler section. So what I'm going to go ahead and do, though, is get you over to one last musical break before I close out the show. I walk through the valley of the shadow of death I take a look at my life and realize there's nothing left Cause I've been blasting and laughing so long That even my mama thinks that my mind is gone But I ain't never crossed a man that didn't deserve it Me be treated like a punk, you know that's unheard of You better watch how you're talking and where you're walking Or you and your homies might be lying in chalk I really hate the trip, but I gotta low as they croak, I see myself in the pistol smoke, fool. I'm the kind of G the little homies want to be like on my knees in the night, saying prayers in the street light. situation they got me facing i can't live a normal life i was raised by the state so i gotta be there with the hood team too much television watching got me chasing dreams i'm an educated fool with money on my mind got my tin in my hand and a gleam in my eye i'm a locked out gangster set tripping banker and my homies is down so don't arouse my anger fool death ain't nothing but a heartbeat away i'm living life do or die what can i say i'm 23 now but will i live to see 24 the way things are going i don't know After minute, hour after hour, everybody's running, but half of them ain't looking, it's going on in the kitchen, but I don't know what's cooking, they say I got to learn, but nobody's here to teach me, if they can't understand it, how can they reach me, I guess they can't, I guess they won't, I guess they front, that's why I know my life is out of luck, fool. I want to thank you for listening to episode number 22 
of Journey with a Cinephile, a horror movie podcast, to just close out this show. If you want to get in touch with me, you can send me an email at journeywithacinephile at gmail.com. Any of the reviews on this episode or any of the past reviews, you can read the written version on Reviews of the Dead, and that is horrorreview.webnode.com. Facebook, if you want to friend request me on there, it's David Michigan Garrett Jr. On Twitter, you can follow me at Buckeye from Mish. On Letterboxd, it's David OSU. On Instagram, it's David OSU87. If you want to download the Flick Chat app, you can, and you can join my group at Journey with a Cinephile. Again, still really haven't done a whole lot with it, so I might end up just cutting that part out, but at the moment, it is still on there. I'm just kind of trying to figure out if anybody really still wants to use it or not. So that's where I'm kind of at with that. But for the next episode, I'm not really entirely sure what the two episodes are going to be. I know with this whole quarantine thing, I'm going to go and try to figure out, thanks to Mark Nato, some movies that has been released relatively recently for 2020 and put that on there. And I'm not really sure what the next 1920, because it will be another Centennial Club episode. So I'm going to go ahead and try to figure out which of the films that I found on Letterboxd that were released in that year are able to be seen and not lost films. So that's what I'm going to go ahead and do there. So it's going to be kind of up in the air, but you will figure that out, you know, when the episode drops finally, which I know isn't the greatest way to kind of do it. But that is all I really wanted to say. So I want to thank you once again for listening. And as always, this is your tour guide, David Garrett Jr. signing off.